Hi everyone, I'm Marion. I'm bringing the Bible reading tonight. As Lauren has said, it is a confronting passage. There are some really quite out there concepts, so stay with me. It's also fairly long. Stay with me in that regard as well. It starts on page 16 in our Bibles, um, Genesis 18, starting at verse 16. It follows on from a passage where three men who had visited Abraham uh, told him, among other things, that his wife Sarah was going to have a son. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike? Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abram said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. 
The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy this city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand in the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favour in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die Look, here is a town near enough for me to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. 
Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. I'd like to pray for Jeff as he comes to speak to us on this interesting passage. Our loving Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Jeff and we ask that you speak to us clearly through Jeff tonight. Amen. Please look away. <laughs> While the, uh, the preacher re-robes himself. Is that, uh, is that good? Very good. <sighs> Where were we? <laughs> um, yes, it's a, it's a skill that uh, I, I encourage people to, to take on as the capacity to read sensibly the scriptures uh, for public edification. You need more of it. Um, <clears throat> this is a carefully constructed theological narrative. It's not accidental. It's a very important narrative. I think I've only preached on it once in my life, in 40 years of preaching, and uh, so uh, more shame me, because it's uh, so critical to understanding our God and our world and his work in the world, uh, what the gospel is basically, and where we stand vis-a-vis that. Uh, The context, the visitation by three men, one of whom happens to be God, uh, Yahweh, and yet uh, it's, it's, it's not a, an incarnation of God so much as a manifestation of God. The incarnation is a unique event. And uh, it's strung together, this narrative, like a clothesline of a series of visitations that uh, hang on this line. And hospitality is a big theme happening here through this. Uh, it's an unpopular passage. Uh, we don't like hearing about human suffering. And this certainly is a passage unapologetically about human suffering. It's so in your face. But if we don't have passages like this and we skirt around them when we come to them as preachers or as readers of scripture, then we're going to end up with a lopsided theology, a lopsided picture of God 
uh, one that we might like, but it won't be accurate. Uh, it'll be unbalanced like a two-legged stool and it won't sustain us in life. So let's look at this uh, in lieu of that and how we can learn God through this passage. In, basically, in, it's in five acts and it starts with Abraham and it ends with Abraham deliberately. This is one deliberate section that we've just read. And the Lord in chapter 18 and verse 17 is pondering to himself and he realises that being a covenant partner cuts both ways and that he has made a, a promise to Abraham that they're going to be partners through history and from Abraham the people of faith will come. And so he says, it's just not right for me to be about to do something as momentous as this, but not bring my covenant partner up to speed and have him on the same page. He wants Abraham to understand his mind, just as the Lord Jesus wants us to have the mind of Christ and to understand his ways in the world. So God wants Abraham to understand what is about to happen. And for the reason that is given in verse 19, because I've chosen him in order that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So this, in effect, is an audio-visual object lesson that he's about to give Abraham for the sake of his family so that they might walk in a way that's righteous and just. They might understand what justice is what righteousness really is, and be committed to it. These words are not self-explanatory. They're filled with content in every different culture and every different age according to the narrative structure of that particular society. And so God is helping us understand these key biblical words, righteousness, justice, righteousness, doing the right thing by your covenant partner, being faithful and justice, being uh, impartial uh, in the treatment of others. And he wants us to understand this in the light of what he's going to do here. This is going to teach us the meaning of these words that we use so freely in our Christian walk. And he points out, the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom has come to me. The Lord has been picking up on this reputation of these couple of cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's not good. We're not sure how the Lord gets his knowledge. We do know he's omniscient. In a real sense, the Lord doesn't need to be here. But you can see why he is here for reasons of justice. He is not going to condemn Sodom and punish them and then have human beings say, oh, you just had a bad day in heaven, you didn't like them, or supply their own reasoning for what this event is about. And so he's going to come down because justice requires the gathering of evidence. This is a prosecutorial team and he's come with two of his angels who are going to go through these cities and collect the data upon which Sodom will be judged. This Lord doesn't just fly off the handle and choose favourites. He acts against sin. And this is where the principle of justice will be tested, that our God is not a God just with a rage reflex. He's discriminating and long-suffering. His patience, though, does have a limit and it has been severely tested by these humans and the way they live. And he is going to show Abram that this justice, this punishment that is coming is deserved. The end has come for Sodom. It hasn't come quickly, but it's come surely. Now, in the church, 
The church is often affected by the philosophies of the world and usually later on the philosophies of the world filter into the church. And I have a little diagram here. Basically, about 400 years ago, through the period of the Enlightenment, drastic changes happened in Western thinking. I call it a humanist era, and now that's inaccurate. Humanists are a particular way of thinking, but basically, on the issue of punishment and judgment, society was trying, really throwing off the shackles of what they saw was restrictive religious thinking. And they threw away the idea that the universe basically is, amor- is moral and they had an amoral universe. It's just a geometric space where things exist. That's not the definition of the human. Uh, the biblical picture is that the universe is, is a moral universe. God has designed it a certain way and he expects certain behaviour of the beings that inhabit it. He holds them to account to that. The humanist had this idea <clears throat> that love, loving humans, is incompatible with judgment. Uh, that results later on, in 200 years later, in, in theologians, as they start to see the conflict between the philosophy and scripture, that uh, basically love is incompatible with even sin and the fall and doctrines like the judgment to come are just excised from theological thinking. Crimes, in other words, are products of our social context, our education, our opportunity, etc. You really can't blame the individual for their crimes. They're always environmentally conditioned. It's deterministic thinking. The human ceases to be an agent of moral responsibility 400 years ago. Critical movement. And uh, really, if we're going to put anyone on trial, we should put society on trial for what they've done to these people to make them turn out this way. That's the way humanists would think. Whereas in God's book, punishment and love and judgment are are always there, but they're in tension. And it's a, a difficult tension to hold, but hold that tension we must. We can't let it go and just have love or just have judgment. We have to have both. It's a both-end situation in Scripture, as we'll see in this text. Punishment is restorative in the biblical sense. God is aiming to restore his good creation. If God does not punish evil, he legitimizes evil, and evil takes over the goodness of God. And God won't have that. God is a moral and holy agent, and he likes his world to be as he intended. And so he steps in. Now, sometimes he steps in in the middle of history, but he does step in ultimately at the end of history to hold every human being accountable. That's the biblical picture. The humanist goes and argues pragmatically that punishment doesn't work and people still 
uh, recidivists and they re-offend and it doesn't deter. And so we should get rid of it and just have rehabilitation, which is again to dehumanise the moral agency of humanity. Punishment for the biblical uh, picture, um, it, it isn't just legalistic. We mustn't misunderstand it. it. It takes into account mitigating factors and intellectual responsibility. That's a biblical view of justice. That affected the whole system of justice that our nation was built on. And when this finally hits in theological schools, the humanist view ends up saying there's really a distinction between testaments. That was actually a third century heresy by a guy, Manichaean, the Manichaean heresy. Uh, basically said the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. In, in 18th and 19th century, you end up with liberal theology, which has never left and possesses half the, the liberal theological establishments, even in this city. It's this view that basically there is a distinction between God, uh, the loving God of the new and the old. We can get rid of the bits which are nasty and just hang on to the bits that make us feel good about ourselves. That's a false gospel. There is no distinction between the Testaments. It's remarkable that the Lord Jesus, when he he comments and uses this passage as a sermon illustration himself in Luke 17, he speaks of the coming of the day of the Son of Man himself. Next time you see me, he says, it's going to be like this. It will be just the same on the day of the Son of Man As, but on the day that Lot went out from Sodom and it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. That's Jesus, the loving Jesus, the one we adore. He was not weak at the knees when it came to talking about judgment. On that day, let no one who is on the housetop and the goods go back into the house and go and take them away. Likewise, let no one is in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. It's a severe warning from the shepherd of our souls. Now, I just point that out because each of us, and myself too, are liable to be affected in our reading of scripture by the cultural, as I say it, the cultural marinade in which we've been dipped for hundreds of years. And we end up looking at the scriptures and we end up trying to apologise for God. Or surely it couldn't mean that. That's not how the apostles or Christ dealt with the scriptures. Christ was not embarrassed with this story. Let's go back to the story and we pick it up in chapter 19 where now we have Lot and it says that he, we locate him at the gate. Uh, now that isn't, isn't just coincidence but to sit at the gate is to be a, a public leader, an elder, uh, probably a judge, at least a member of the Chamber of Commerce. Lot had done well. You see, he'd started in chapter 12 as they separated from Abraham and he he went down, he moved down to the plain. And then we read in chapter 14 before he was abducted by the uh, king, the emperor from the east, he had moved into the city, become a citizen. And even once he's abducted, he didn't take the hint that maybe living in Sodom wasn't such a great idea. He moved straight back, repaired the real estate, on he went. And now he's moved up and he's a leading figure. And Lot sees these two men coming towards him. Men, angels, we're not sure what they looked like, but they were impressive figures. And 
I, I think of the old divine A.W. Tozer. If you're looking for someone to read to encourage your faith, swim in Tozer. You could do a lot worse. A.W. Tozer, I think he started the denomination Christian Missionary Alliance. Uh, now, he once was saying, like, what, what, he asked what was an angel like. He said, well, basically, I don't know what they're like, but I know if they walked into our church tonight, every one of us, it would take all our willpower not to bow and worship them as God. That's how impressive they were. So these striking figures would have turned ahead as they came through the gate. And Lot sees, maybe he understands that they're divine beings, maybe not, but he does take a posture of worship and he falls down before them. And he pleads that they might come to his house, which in his culture would be big bonus points for honour in his name in that city. To be able to offer hospitality to anyone is an honour, but to offer it to angels unawares is super points. And he was about to score well. The angels who've come, they've come to assess the city. They're on a prosecutorial mission. They want to get data, so they want to stay out in the city in the square. But Lot prevails and he encourages them to come home and he puts together a pretty quick meal. It's interesting that he, he, he basically they, they end up by just having toasties for dinner and uh, it's, it's unleavened too. <laughs> Curious, isn't it? And that's a fascinating, this passage is full of fascinating little details. And, uh, and Lot is putting on a good show. And right as they're finished and they're about to bed down for the night, Suddenly there's a sound outside, <clears throat> there's a mob in the street and Lot just tries to deflect and, uh, you know, uh, it's just the neighbours, they're having fun, you know, and don't worry about that and then pounding starts at the door. And the voices, it sounds like the whole of the male population of the city is outside that door and uh, they want sexual congress with these beings you see, Lot has been noticed. His guests have been noticed. And these people, they live in such a street where they would abuse these creatures. They would not only step over God's definition of, and his design for sexual activity, they'd even step across the cosmic barriers and... Uh, uh, have intercourse with these particular beings. This was going to be a boy's night out to remember. And that's uh, what they are doing here. And Lot really sees this is going to look very bad uh, and he can't let that happen. So he slips out from the door and he tries to hose the crowd down. Now, come on, boys, you don't want to do this. This is not how we, you know. And uh, he makes the, the terrible mistake of trying to tell them that uh, you know, this is immoral behaviour. It's the unforgivable sin to tell sinners that they're sinners. And uh, he tries then to use transactional logic like, um, hey, I've got a couple of beautiful daughters back there, you know, and maybe you could have your way with them. Interesting father. I think, uh, <clears throat> as I said this morning, I think he could forget Father's Day that year. Uh, no prezzies coming for lot. And, uh, but the, lo the mob are un unmoved and they are offended. How dare this guy lecture us and he's an alien. He's not even one of us. And isn't that amazing? Lot suddenly discovers 
how much contempt he has held in by his neighbourhood. He has done so much work to become one of them and then to become a leader amongst, amongst them. They have set the agenda for his life and it's like a ladder that he's been climbing but he's pitched it against the wrong wall in a city that's about to end up as bitumen. What a waste of a life. You know, it's interesting just to pause there. When you are on the early rungs of your ladder, and it's interesting just to ask, which wall are you putting your ladder on? You know, there's a lot of trinkets, there's a lot of bling, there's a lot of reinforcement to become someone in the eyes of the lost of this society. And you can put a lot of effort, decade by decade, into becoming someone respectable, into getting a name. But it'll amount to nothing when the Son of Man comes if you haven't taken God into account. And his agency and his kingdom and his city matter more than this. Well, anyway, Lot didn't need to go into all that kerfuffle because the, uh, the angels, they can handle themselves, thank you very much, and they reach out and grab Lot and just pull him back around the door, <clears throat> blinding the men at the, at the door. They are blind spiritually, but now they're dazzled by the light of God himself, and they cannot see. They're lost, as the, the reading said earlier to this, tonight. Now they head inside and we're into a different scene and the tone suddenly changes and the, the guest's tone becomes very urgent and they suddenly come clean with what mission they're really on. They're agents for heaven. <clears throat> and they have now all the evidence they need that God is justified in terminating the existence of this particular city and the others like it. And so they tell this to Lot and they, they say to him, right, <clears throat> you've got to get out of here. The fuse has been lit. The meter is ticking. You've got to go. Now, you're allowed to take anyone you want in your family. They make the offer of salvation as broad as he wants. He goes and he must have gone out the same door where all these people are now groping in the dark and they don't touch him and he ends up around at his, <clears throat> his, his uh, daughter's house where, where the, the son-in-laws hear him and Lot tells them, you, we've got to get out of here, boys. You know, I've got these two angels in my, my, my lounge room and uh, they're going to rain sulphur upon this place. It's going to be obliterated. Matter of hours. We've got to pack and leave. And they think he's pulling their leg. You know, it, surely this is a joke. They don't believe it. It's just tragic that the people in our families like that, that know what we believe, but to them it's light. It's dispensable. That's tragic. And uh, these, Lot, Lot is, is, uh, has no, <clears throat> no, no traction with them and he ends up back. And uh, they, they basically are saying, right, let's get going. Let's head off. And Lot, we read in verse 16, isn't it fascinating? He hesitates. Just says he hesitates. He knows that he's in a situation where he has some power here. <clears throat> and Lot is a very calculating individual. He knows he's been saved, so maybe he can play the grace card here 
and just delay this judgment a bit and maybe he can talk things around because he's pretty good at that. Maybe who knows what's going on in his head. He just tries to delay it. The uh, angelic prosecutors have had enough of that and they grab a hand each of his wife and daughter and Lot and another daughter and they just tug them out of the city and they take them to the outskirts of the city and they say, now get out of here, head for the hills. Literally. But uh, Lot, <coughs> curious fellow, he just says, uh, while we're talking grace, just a little favour, um, you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm not in my prime. I, I'm not made for, you know, bushwalking. I haven't been doing my Pilates. It's, uh, you know, and I've got my good slippers. It's, couldn't we just, uh, you know, hey, there's a little village over there. It's fascinating what this question, this request, shows about Lot's understanding of justice and judgment. He says, can't I go over there? I mean, he's expecting that he'll be granted his request because God is going to get enough bloodshed in Sodom and Gomorrah. That'll satiate his revenge lust. And this is just a... He's a utilitarian... You know, and just a, it's only a small sacrifice. You see, he doesn't understand morality. He doesn't understand the moral fabric of the very universe he lives in. He doesn't understand that this is holy war, that God has made his decision and it cannot be reversed. Things have come to a head. And they grant his wish and they say, basically, get there and... Uh, because as soon as you get there, the fireworks will begin. And we don't know how it happened quite, but something from heaven detonates the sulfurous fire. And they're already sitting on a petrochemical base. It would have been over in minutes. Sodom and Gomorrah are wiped off the map. You can find where they were archaeologically today. You can find the cities of the plain, five of them. You can go and dig them up, what's left of them. And they're ruined by the action of God. The actions of God leave their mark even on human archaeology. Right at that point, as they're looking, Lot's wife stops, loses contact with the pack, turns back and nostalgically yearns for that wonderful quality of life she's just saying goodbye to and she gets taken because her heart is not in the family though she is in proximity to the saved family her heart is still in Sodom and she thinks about the loss of her garden her house, her friends her bridge club and too late folks Really, I've got to say, every one of us needs tonight to realise that being here does not secure your destiny. Sitting beside true saints does not secure your destiny eternally. What secures your destiny is truly having your heart in heaven and heading in that direction. You know, in 40 years' time, when you're where I am, it would be a wonderful thing if you know, Lauren and Miriam and Beth and I could get the roll out and we could say, Gee, they all made it to the hill. 
But you see, you've got to resolve while you have time to mix with the people and become one of them, not one of the people in the cities of the plain, but God's people. You've got to resolve that. Otherwise, you face the judgment that is coming. And I wouldn't be doing you a favour. I would not be loving if I didn't make that as starkly obvious as possible. You have a decision to make. Sodom and Gomorrah, they disappear. We come back finally to the solitary figure of Abram up in the ridges. I can't help but thinking of that beautiful Fred McCubbin triptych that's in the National Gallery where the, the, the pioneer, I think it's called, the pioneers, and the pioneer finally is, is burying his own wife and he looks out and you can see the cityscape down in the valley. And we, we, we suspect that was painted out somewhere near Heidelberg. And uh, here we have the picture that Abram goes out and every morning for donkey's years he's gone out and he's looked over and he's been able to see the glinting of the cities of the plain in morning light. But not this morning. This morning he goes out and there's just smoke rising like a barbecue that has just been put out. No cities to be seen. And he's seen that he worships a God who acts. He sees that he worships a God who keeps his promise. He sees he worships a God who is holy. He sees he worships a God who is not weak at the knees. He sees that he has a God who follows through on his promises. There's an object lesson for us. It's fascinating that when the Apostle Peter preaches on this in 2 Peter, and I think we have, he says this. You can read it. I can read it too. He says, If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Folks, there it is. This isn't Jeff's view. If you've got problems with this, take it up with Peter. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved covenant, or conduct of the lawless. Now, I wouldn't exactly jump to the adjective righteous when I think of Lot. But you see, his righteousness is by virtue of the faith of Abraham, not his record. It's by the faithfulness of that one as the covenant partner of God. And if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He has that sort of power and to hold the unrighteousness for punishment on the day of judgment. You see the biblical view of judgment and justice here? It's a both and story. He does both. He can hold the tension together. That's why he's God. He doesn't lose the tension. He holds together. He triangulates the truth between holding the ungodly and holding us, those who plucked out of the fire. How does he do that? Well, here's the clincher for me. And folks, this is why I became a Christian in second year university, because this suddenly became clear to me. And I want to leave this with you tonight as the most important truth. The reason why you can have confidence to sing before God tonight and sing songs about him and to him and that he enjoys it is because he has judged sin. Because God is judgmental in a proper sort of way. 
And how does he judge sin? He sends a son who he plunges into the fiery breath of God. And if you think Sodom and Gomorrah got it tough, imagine what it's being like being the Holy One of God who then, in the eyes of God, becomes sin on our behalf and then is immersed in the very presence of the breath of God who can tolerate no evil. The judge takes his own medicine for us. He judges sin. He deals with it. He doesn't lose the tension. He becomes sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Amazing, isn't it? So let's not lose the tension. Let's maintain it. Because I don't think we can appreciate grace. I don't think we can appreciate the love of God until we understand what it meant for God to become sin for us. Then we understand how lucky we really are. We can only appreciate love. We can only appreciate mercy. We can only appreciate grace when we appreciate the holiness of God who will not stomach sin and will bring it to account. And he puts these stories in the Bible so we'll understand that that day is coming. Mark his word on that. May God be praised for how he really is. And all God's people said, Amen.